0: Uh, good afternoon to you all again. Uh, welcome to Trinity Chippenham. If it's your first time you're visiting with us, you're so very welcome. Good to see you here. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the, the startup team here in Trinity Chippenham. You join us perhaps at a quite exciting time with the church's life, a uh, quite challenging time as well, where we move from a startup team to a nominated, uh, chosen uh, pastoral team, essentially. That's what we're in the process of teaching on and where we're moving to. So we're in this series at the moment all about church leadership, what it's about, the ins and outs. So we've heard already we've had the why of leadership, why do we have church leaders at all, and we've had the what of church leaders, what should church leaders be doing day in, week out, etc. And today we're going to be thinking about the who of leadership, who should be in church leadership, what sort of people should be in church leadership. I'm going to give a few kind of uh, explanatory comments uh, just regarding the text and some other items. So before I go there, I wanted to get into the text today just so we've kind of got an awareness of what we're dealing with, um, what we're going to expect. Uh, We're going to kind of ground ourselves in the book of Titus mostly today. Uh, We've been in Titus for the past three weeks really, but we're also going to take snippets from uh, the book of 1 Timothy, and in particular chapter 3. Both books written by Paul, uh, both books written to early churches, Uh, And they both talk about leadership and kind of qualifications and lists for leadership. And by looking at both, we get a lovely, lovely whole picture of who is qualified for leadership, who should be in church leadership. So we're going to be mainly in Titus, but dipping in a bit to 1 Timothy as well. I also want to say at the start that we are doing Q&A at the end of uh, the sermon time. Yep, at the end of the sermon time. Uh, And it's going to be kind of a bit of a panel Q&A because Peter and Dave are going to come up and join me as well. So if you've got any questions about kind of the past three weeks of teaching, then note them down. There's some post-it notes, pens at the back. You're most welcome to grab some. Uh, Any questions you want, uh, note them down. We're still having life groups uh, to talk about the whole kind of process aspect and any other deeper questions. But maybe this morning there's something in what I say or what some of the other guys say you want to raise questions on. Okay, so keep that in mind. Let's turn to the passage in question. We're going to the book of Titus and chapter 1. Ah, uh, in the church Bibles, what page number is that? Somebody got it? 998. Nine, nine, nine. Nine, nine, Lovely. So if you've got one of the, the ch- <laughs> different options. Um, if you've got one of the church Bibles, we're on page 998 uh, for Titus and chapter one. If you, um, by all means, if you need a Bible at home, if you want a Bible at home, maybe one in uh, easy to understand English, this is our gift to you. Please take one away. You're most welcome to have one. We'd love you to have God's word in your home. Uh, Let's read uh, Titus 1, and in particular verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and ought open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered he must not be arrogant oh a bit already uh, must be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good self controlled upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it let 's just pray as we uh, head into this time together. Father, we thank you for uh, the wonderful gift of, of each other. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for establishing um, your church on earth. And we thank you for the pattern that you've left of, of bringing forth church leaders and um, to lead these individual uh, congregations. We pray this morning that we, uh, we'd come to know the text, we'd come to know good leadership, but we'd also, more importantly, come to know more of you, be more amazed uh, and thankful for who you are, we pray. Amen. Okay, so like I said, I just wanted to give some clarification points up front, um, so we're kind of not confused and we're all on the same page as we walk through this today. Two points. One is grammatical, one is gender-related. So in the grammar issue, maybe you saw in the passage here, you're reading through and you're like, why is Paul using the word elder? And then verse 7, he jumps to overseer. Maybe you're from different church backgrounds, you have different words for church leadership. We're talking here about transitioning to a pastoral team with pastors in it. So what is it with all these different terms and, and figures of speech? Why are we using them all? Well, as far as we can tell, and as far as we can see from God's Word, that there's no differentiation between these. There's not like there's different roles. There's not like an eldership role and an overseer role and a pastor role. It's all just the same job. It's just church leadership. Okay? But it's just different words for the same uh, role. So when you, we're talking today and you maybe see elder, overseer, etc., just think church leader. we all on the same page there. Excellent. Right. So that's grandma, But... but and the issue of gender as well, we want to be biblical as a church. We want to honor God's word. And what we see is in God's word and how he's created us is that he's created male and female, uh, absolutely equal in our creation, in our, our sin, absolutely equal in our salvation through God, absolutely equal in our sanctification, that is our being more made more Christ-like day by day, absolutely equal in our eternal glory, we're absolutely equal in all those senses. Yet within that equality, he creates diversity. So if you think of it, just like within uh, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absolutely equal, yet diverse, absolutely different in role and function. He cre- that's the way God is, and He creates male and female that way. A way we see specifically how that plays out is is partly in the home and partly in the church. So at Trinity, we we would believe that the the role of leadership, of ultimate leadership in the church, is one for men to hold and one for men to take part in. And straight away, that might that might put your back up or maybe offend or shock you because let's face it, that puts us at odds with so many non-Christian organizations and certainly with many other churches possibly as well. We recognize that. And all I would say is if that's, if that's how you feel today, please don't kind of shut off and not listen for the rest of the day. Please stay involved, hear what we have to say. And perhaps afterwards, come talk to myself or some of the other startup team, uh, maybe during the week in life groups. Uh, think through this, pray through this and talk to us And why we believe that and why we think we're created equal yet diverse. So that's kind of the, the upfront issues. So we've got our passage ahead of us today. And if we didn't have this passage on the screen, if we didn't know what God was saying in terms of leadership qualification, what would come to mind? If you, know, if you were going to draw a picture of a typical church leader or the church leader that you um, I just might naturally come to, to think of, what kind of characteristics would they have? What would they look like? What would they display? We've got a fantastic artistic image on the next slide, perhaps. Oh, no, next one. Here we go. So, this is about the limit of my t- artistic abilities. Um, stick men and some clip art, I'm afraid. No Photoshop involved. But what comes to mind when you think leadership, or in particular, church leadership? Maybe it's, his, um, maybe it's something to do with just his general appearance. I know he's got, well, it looks like three quarter length trousers um, and an interesting shirt, but he's wearing a tie. You know, at least he's wearing a tie. And, and church leaders wear ties, don't they? they? They dress formally. They dress appropriately. Maybe it's in his appearance or his, his good looks and charm that way. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's something of his gift of speech. You know, he's got a megaphone there. and Maybe he's just really gifted in his uh, public speech, in his upfront preaching, or maybe just kind of one-to-one or group conversation. He's kind of the really popular guy, really the gift of the gab, as we'd say, up north. Maybe that's what draws us and we think is, is a good characteristic of a, of a church leader. Perhaps it's his intellect, the amount of knowledge he's uh, consumed over the years. You know, he just doesn't know the, the Bible back to front. He knows it in Greek and Hebrew, and he's got some funny letters after his name as well. You know, that, that's that's the ideal qualification we want for a church leader. Maybe it's uh, his kind of—I put dollar signs there, but kind of businessy financial acumen, because churches—you know—we generate finances; they have to be dealt with appropriately. We've got. Uh, perhaps buildings and practical things to take care of. Perhaps it's this kind of management abilities of people and and, and resources, etc. So perhaps all these things come to mind for you, uh, first and foremost. When we think about leadership, perhaps they don't. It would be dangerous to start here, wouldn't it? It would be dangerous to start here and not look at what God's word says instead. I just want to say on all these things, these aren't necessarily bad. You know, we, we need people who are gifted in some, well, at least some of these ways. Your dress sense doesn't really matter too much. But we, we, this is so valuable for people who can communicate well and have great knowledge and can, can manage people and resources. So they're not necessarily bad, but where does, where does God start and where does God's word start? And that's where we get to our passage today in Titus. We can kind of break it down uh, this way. We, we want to combine desire with qualification. So if you skip on to the next, next slide. Oh, next one again. So we've got desire and we've got some qualifications. Where do we get our, our issue of desire from? This is where we, we jump into 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 starts with the phrase, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is, church leader, he desires a noble task anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task it's a funny one that isn't it you know a noble task i I don't generally use the phrase a noble task day by day it's not kind of uh, a phrase that pops up into our mind but what, what is he talking about why is paul bringing this up that he desires a noble task well partly because who on earth would want to be a church leader i mean seriously it's 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 not the easiest job in the world you go ask any church leader who's been uh, in the job for job in the role for any amount of time, and they will tell you that it's got its tough points. It, it, it can be tiring. You can have uh, sleepless nights. your wife can have sleepless nights because she's worrying about everything that you're doing. You have less time in your family. Perhaps if you're fortunate to be in a paid position as a church leader, church leaders don't get to be paid that much. it's not like the most affluent job in the world. You've got to um, try and defend the church from the outside in accusations. You've got to keep the church unified inside by loving people, caring for them, dealing with their issues week by week. Who would want to be a church leader? It is, it is tough. It's an absolute privilege as well. It's an amazing privilege to serve God in this way, but, but let's not recognize it. It's, it's easy. So I think when Paul says it's a noble task, it is. It's a noble task for someone to have a desire placed in the heart to serve God's people. Ultimately, anyone in leadership is just an under-shepherd of Jesus, the great shepherd. So we have our desire. And what is that desire? It's kind of what we said last week. It's a desire to feed, lead, care, protect, and equip God's people. But we all know desire isn't everything, is it? I have always, always, always desired to play the guitar solo from Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Oh, top three guitar solos of all time, Definitely. And I have a great desire. I've desired to do that since about 12, 14 when I started listening to it. But my qualifications as a guitarist just don't match up. They just don't. I've not practiced enough. I'm not mature enough on my guitar. My fingers cannot move as fast as slash. Therefore, I cannot play that guitar solo. So we know desire is, is, is a great thing, but they aren't, it isn't complete without qualifications. Just one thing on desire. How, how would we even know if someone has a desire? to lead and serve. Ultimately, that's within that man's heart. That's within their heart, and that's something that only they can really share. But maybe one slight inkling we might have is maybe where we we see them already fulfilling this role of feeding, leading, caring, protecting, and equipping elsewhere in the church and elsewhere in their family. You know, they've got a desire to do this already. Therefore, they're going to find avenues to do it whether they're officially up the front or in another position, they're just the sort of people, they're just sort of the men who desire to feed, lead, care, equip, and protect. So maybe that's how we might perceive it. But ultimately, desire is nothing, as Paul goes on to say, without qualification. So what are the qualifications? Summarized by the five R's, and we've got our first three up here, and then we'll go on to the next couple. Our five R's, above reproach. We get this from uh, Titus 1, and and, uh, let me see, in verse 6, if you've got it in front of you, it says, If anyone is above reproach, etc., the husband of one wife. Again, in verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? It's a funny term. And then this is kind of our our overarching um, qualification. It encompasses all the rest. The rest kind of really describe what above reproach is about. But. Maybe think of it in this way. It's, it's being Mr. Teflon. You know what Teflon is? It's the stuff you put on your non-stick pans. So when you're trying to cook some chops and all the rest, it doesn't stick to the pan, but mine always do. And then you spend ages scraping it, and you scrape the Teflon off because you use something metallic, etc. etc. That, that's Teflon. It's the stuff that means nothing sticks. So a, a man who is qualified to be above reproach is, is someone who nothing sticks in him. So if allegations come from the outside... They just don't stick. His, qualific- his character is known to be just not that. The qualification, the, the uh, statement from outside just can't hold up. If there's disagreement within the church that, that oh, he's, he's like this, and he's like so-and-so, is he, Mr. Teflon. It just won't stick to him. No, no, he's, he's a mature, healthy Christian man. And it's not only about um, having this kind of Teflon ability to, to uh, I guess, deal with any accusations. It's also about having credibility within the church. It's having credibility so that he's actually credible to speak into others' lives. It would be no use if, if a man was to be in leadership and yet you say, Ah, but there's a gaping hole in your characteristic here. There's a gaping hole in who you are as a person. You, you, you're not credible to actually speak into my life. So we need him to be above reproach, above all else. And Paul gives us some examples of what that above reproachness looks like, above what that that character qualification looks like. And we we dive in at this point into what feels like quite a long list, to be honest. It's listy, it's list language, it's this and this and this and the next. I just wanted to say right up front that Whilst it might sound like a list and the easy thing to do is, is kind of think, well, man, these guys are so naturally talented and able and, wow, godly and profound. And instead, I think Paul's pointing us to, to what is just biblical godly maturity. And that only comes about by, by God working in these men's hearts. So it's not so much about how incredible these men are, but rather how incredible the God is that stands behind them and loves them and cares for them and matures them. So we're not to get caught up so much with uh, how amazing the men are, but how amazing the God is who matures them and who equips them. So, family relations. Let's read verse 6. So we left off. If anyone is above reproach, uh, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Why does Paul go straight to the household? Why does Paul go straight to the family? Maybe it's because, think of it this way, if, if I asked if I could live as a fly on the wall in your household for 24 hours, or maybe a whole week, how would you feel about that? A bit invasive for a start, but it could be awkward, couldn't it? Because it's in the home, it's in the family uh, relationship, it's within the four walls that, that we maybe have and enjoy that, that our kind of guard comes down, and the masks come off, and we are who we really are. And Paul says, no, look, in, look into that, to that relationship. Look into that home environment, because there you're going to see the real character of the man. There you're going to see the real way that God has shaped and changed his life. So, what is he saying in particular? That he is to be the husband of one wife. That is literally another way of looking at it, that he is a one woman man. He's, you know, emotionally, physically, sexually, relationally. Everything about him is about the one woman to whom he is potentially married to. He's fully engaged with her. There's no one else on the scene. And within that marriage relationship, he's already feeding, leading, caring, equipping, and protecting. He's that one-woman sort of man. I don't think this explicitly says he has to be married. I think Paul's guiding us towards men who have healthy relationships with their very closest of friends and relations. So if a man wasn't to be married, then what are we to look at? We're to look at, well, who are his closest friends and family? And how does he relate into them? When, the, when his guard is down, when he's at home relaxing, does he still feed, lead, care, protect, and equip? How does he behave? How is his, what's the character of his life? Paul goes on. Uh, he says, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. I mean, this is a tricky one. His children are believers? Ah, Crumbs. I mean, it says in the footnotes, it can also be, uh, his children can be faithful. It doesn't say here, is in the commentaries. But that his children can be faithful. We're not going to try and impose the, the salvation of a man's children based upon his abilities and his acts. Yes, uh, parents are called to um, show their children Christ. Yes, parents are called to encourage them into a relationship with God. And we I'm, I'm sure so many of you do as parents, you pray uh, for your children, you want them earnestly to to come into a knowledge of a salvation through Jesus, but you can't ultimately make them do that. You cannot be held responsible for their actions. But rather Paul's, again, looking at the home life and saying, look, what, what's his relationship like with his children? Do they respect him as a leader in the home? If he has children, how, how do they relate to him? Do they recognize him as, as one who feeds, leads, cares, protects, and equips in the household? And if his children are uh, in uh, subject to the charge of debauchery and subordination, how, how unpleasant, unfair would it be to pull that man into leadership and say, hey, you've got to deal with church issues now, rather than saying, look, we love you. Please chase after your children. Your family is so important. Please chase after them first and foremost. So how how is his family relations? Are they mature? Are they healthy? Is he able to lead in the home already? And the next one really links into that. What is his response under pressure? Because let's face it, like I've said already, the church can be quite a difficult place and it can be quite a pressured place, but so can the household. So the two are very closely linked. What are his? What is his response under pressure? We flicked to the next slide. We've I should have a list of five negatives and six positives. Yeah, there we go. Awesome. So we've got a list. Paul gives us a list in Titus. And uh, the first five on the left-hand side, uh, arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, are from Titus. And then we're going to tag on another one, uh, not a recent convert, which comes in from 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. So we've got negatives and we've got positives. So kind of what, what response to pressure would show us that actually somebody's not mature in Christ, somebody's not mature in their faith? Well, it could be things like being arrogant or quick-tempered. We can't go through them all today. We don't have the time. We can maybe pick some more up in life group. But just think of some of them. Uh, what if he was arrogant? What if he just did not listen? La, 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 la. I don't care. Doesn't care about your, your input, your responses. Doesn't care about being uh, taught by anyone else. He's arrogant about his own abilities. Uh, what about his, his maybe quick temper or his violence, potentially not just physically, but but verbally or emotionally? When he's up against it in, in difficult church situations, when uh, his time is limited and there's so many needs all around the place, does he lash out? Does he make others feel smaller, lesser? Is he uh, greedy for his own selfish gain? Is he perhaps... Trying to just get into a position of power and authority within the church? Is he even worse still? Is he um, trying to line his own pockets with the finances of churches? And goodness, that's happened so many times, sadly. What, what is his response under pressure like? And that, that last one there, let's just think about that. that uh, Paul says he shouldn't be a, a recent convert. He says in verse 6, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Again, language we don't use every day, is it puffed up with conceit? But when he's up against it, when he's, he's potentially sadly thrown into this position early on in his walk with Christ, there's a the potential that he becomes conceited, that he thinks so highly of himself and his abilities. He doesn't, he hasn't lived the life, he hasn't walked the walk, he hasn't seen the pressures and the, the frustrations and the temptations in Christian life and in church leadership to, to actually say, oh, I can't handle this, I desperately need God, I desperately need the advice and support of others. So Paul says, look, when, when the pressure's on, th- this is the sort of person you don't want leading your church. And again, he gives us an amazing list of positives. What are the sort of qualifications? What's the characteristics that come out of a man when he is pushed and when he is under pressure? And remember, no, none of these are to do with his, his amazing um, natural abilities or his... Um, Yes, yeah, stern willpower. is all about how God has been maturing him as a person through his life. My goodness, I'm sure many times we've, we know ourselves to be many of these things on the left-hand side. God's pointed saying, no, no, look, you want to look for mature, uh, godly men who have healthy responses to pressure. So we have this list of positives instead. Let's read it for you in, uh, in verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, just picking off a few of these things. What does it mean <clears throat> to have a healthy response to, to pressure? Well, hospitable is a funny one to put in there because sometimes we limit that to just well, providing uh, meals to each other. And that is, is great hospitality itself, but it, c- it can sadly turn into like, a, oh, well, I've invited you, you should invite me, and we'll have a lovely dinner club between us. Paul saying, no, 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 it's far more than that. Understanding the early church... Literally, the church leaders were the, the first line of help, the first line of defense for Christians who were uh, moved out of their own homes, had barely anything to live on. And under that pressure, the church leader would, should be the first one to step in and say, no, look, I'll, I'll take care. I'll try and help out any way I can. Your house is my house. It's that sort of hospitality, that, that caring for you through any burden, even under the pressure. A, a lover of good, it's a funny phrase again. What does it mean to be a lover of good? Well, it, it, from God comes all good things. Therefore, this man is someone who, under difficult circumstances, under pressures, doesn't run away to the negative things of the world, but instead loves the good things that come from God. That's, that's his type of response under pressure. Self-controlled against violent or quick-tempered. Upright, wholly disciplined. He's mature in his character. He's mature in his behavior. Only because he has such a loving God who works in his heart. By the Spirit. So he is above reproach, above all else. He is uh, has a healthy relationship with his family. He has healthy responses to pressure, both within uh, family life, within the church. And if we skip on to the next, we'll find the final two of our five hours. He has an excellent external reputation. Because just like in the home, when your mask can come off and uh, the pressure's off and you just relax and you're really yourself, then Sadly, sometimes also when we leave church and we walk into the workplace or the social club or whatever hobby and you meet with your friends for coffee during the week, we can change. We know that. Paul's trying to say, no, no, look, it it should be a rounded personality, a fully mature personality, not perfect in every way, but mature in that even his his friends, his colleagues, his uh, hobby members can't say anything bad about him. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, I think ultimately we don't want to be called a hypocrite as Christians. And we definitely don't want this church or God's wider church or even, or even Jesus himself to be brought into disrepute because somebody's kind of living a two-faced life. And somebody on the outside can say, are you kidding me? He's the leader of your church. Do you know what he talks like on a, Sunday, on a Monday morning? Do you know how he kind of swindles the cash in the local uh, club or organization? Uh, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, aren't you? It's not what we want. We don't want to entertain that in the slightest. So this paints a picture again of of how he is above reproach, healthy family relations, healthy response to pressure, a healthy uh, reputation with those outside. And finally, a godly handling of of revelation. That is, what did he do with this? What can he do with this? And Titus says it in this way verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We heard in week one when Dave Searay was preaching that that is the, the essential why of why we need leadership. We need people who hold firm to the uh, trustworthy word, so that I'm able to give instruction and also rebuke those who contradict it. That's, that's essentially why we need leadership. So so Paul says, well, what can you do with this? And he doesn't say straight away that he has to be able to preach from the front. He doesn't say he has to be amazingly eloquent at standing up in front of a big group of people and providing a sermon week by week. No, he just has to hold firm to this trustworthy taught—that That is the entirety of God's word. Summed up, as we heard the other week in, in chapter three about that, we are saved by faith and faith alone. No other element, no other twist to the gospel, no other additives coming in. But that he sees the whole of God's word and he says, yeah, yeah, that's the truth of the gospel. And he's able to, to not only know that, but to offer it to others. So whether that's one-on-one, whether that's in other groups, whether that's in so many different ways, he, is, he holds firm to this word and that he's able to give instruction to others with it. And if the time comes and if, if, if it's necessary, that he will also be able to stand up to those who rebuke it and contradict it. There's our our five R's. There's our kind of rounded uh, individual. Someone who has both desire, difficult to see like we say. But then what can we look at? What can we see from from the outside? Can we see someone who is ultimately above reproach? And and that's described by having healthy family relations. a, A positive response to pressure. A healthy reputation with those outside. And a good handling of God's word in Revelation. That, that's kind of the package. That's the picture we're called to look for. Mature, healthy Christian men. And once again, we say that it's not because they're so naturally gifted or talented, but only because God is so good to work in their lives and to bring them to maturity through the work of his Holy Spirit. So we've got our list. We've got our our view of, of who we should be looking out for. But, but I wonder, is is there more to this list than just looking to church leaders and ticking off the boxes. Because if Paul's actually saying that that yes, this is particular to church leaders, this is what we need to be looking out for, and absolutely that's what we're going to be praying through as a church in the weeks to come. But but really he's just giving us an image of what healthy Christian living looks like. And if he's giving an image of of healthy Christian living, you know, we can uh, deal with the issues of being a husband or a parent, etc., that 's perhaps not applicable to all of us. but the reality is if he 's dealing with the image of of healthy Christian maturity, then this applies to all of us that 's the, that's the humbling reality and the scary reality because it 's easy to disengage and say, "Oh excellent, now I need to know what to look for in leadership but but ultimately they 're you know second to your christians they 're up there somewhere, and i 'm just a little Joe Schmo down here christian at They're they're sort of super talented or super godly somehow. Paul says, no, no, this is just the maturity. This is the the Christ-likeness that we're all called into. And at that point, this becomes slightly scary and maybe slightly even offensive because it's exposing. I felt exposed in the past few weeks reading it. Goodness, man, how many times do I do this? And, oh, God, I'm not like this at all. And uh, I struggle and, uh, God, help me, I and maybe you feel the same. That it's, it's exposing. We realize that we're not all we cracked up to be. We, we realize that even though the years of our, our Christian living, that we're still, we're still on that path to being mature. We're still on that path to be wholly rounded individuals. And the temptation is, is to do what, well, sadly, our, our flesh wants to do all the time. We, the temptation is to look inwards at that point oh, I'm ashamed. I, I, I've not quite made it. I'm not quite up to the, the grade somehow. All right, I'll look inwards. I'll try harder. Um, I, I'll get up extra early. I'll, I'll, I'll do really well, blah, blah, blah. And we try and we try and try in our own strength to somehow please God, to somehow make his list again. And, and God says time and time again, and no, 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 that's, that's the very center of sin. To try and to try and live up to my expectations somehow on your own merit, on your own strength. Rather, the invitation is to look upwards to Christ, rather the invitation is to to look to Christ, who absolutely fulfills every element of this list. He is absolutely perfect in every way. I mean just think of his of just his above reproach relation and, and his reputation with those outside that uh, in his years of ministry, even when uh, he, they brought him to trial, they had to bring in false witnesses because they couldn 't find people to actually talk against him, and even when when those false witnesses were there in jesus trial. They couldn't hold together. That The testimony wasn't like concrete. It wasn't true. He had a spotless external reputation. His, his relations with his family members, both physical on the earth, in terms of his, his mother and brothers, was, was always one of love and care. Even when he rebuked him and said, somebody grab him and take him to a mental institute. He still loved upon them. He still cared for them. He was still trying to lead them into a knowledge of the Father. And his response under pressure well, how many times was Jesus uh, faced with long sleepless nights, with crowds pushing in around him, with demands for his time and attention to come heal? Jesus, come over here. Jesus, come over there. And yet he was always self-controlled and a lover of the good things that came from God and, and disciplined and holy and upright. And finally, his handling of revelation. Revelation. I mean, who could surpass Jesus in his knowledge of the Word and the knowledge of his Father who sent him? John's Gospel says that he is the very Word of God incarnate. So if Jesus fulfills all these areas of, of healthy Christian living, if he is the example, if he is the goal of who Paul is saying that we're to grow into, then isn't it foolishness to try and look inside and try and drum ourselves up to some sort of behavioral excellence? Instead, the invitation is to look heavenward and to just bare our souls and say, Oh God, I, I recognize that this, this list you've given, it's tough because it's talking about full maturity and I don't feel like I'm there yet. I might be on the start of my walk with Christ, I might be um, years into it, but I'm still not there and I desperately, desperately need you to work in me. I don't want to try to this, do this on my own. I'm not going to try and uh, strum up some more strength because that's failed time and time again. But instead, I'm going to come helplessly, needless, uh, in my great need before you. I say, Jesus, please work through me, in me, by your spirit to mature me into the character of person you want me to be, to be more Christ-like. We've, we've seen our, our image of Of godly leadership. We've seen it kind of quite explicitly in in the letters to to Timothy and to Titus. We've kind of got our list of of qualifications to look for and and to maybe see those who desire to lead in this way. So first and foremost, our invitation is in these next coming weeks as a church, as we think through, as we pray through, God, who are you directing me to? Who is displaying these qualifications? Who is showing me that, that actually they mature in you, that they're a well-rounded individual who has walked the walk and, and they love you and they enjoy you and you have worked in their life to turn them into this sort of man. The invitation is to, to pray through that and, and to dwell with God and, and try and understand who in this community is, is going to fulfill that role. But the greater invitation, the, the ultimate invitation to each and every one of us day in, day out, week by, year on year is to lay our lives before God and say, ah, oh, we're hopeless without you. We cannot be anything excellent. We cannot be this sort of loving, caring, um, healthy, mature person in Christ without you. We're not going to try on our own. We're going to look to you day by day. And that's the invitation I want to leave us with.